Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Right after the book of Daniel, I think y'all were in Daniel last week, is that correct? Okay, so uh, go past those first of the prophetic books, uh, past the book of Daniel, you'll find uh, the book of Hosea. I'm going to take about, probably about a third of our time tonight and talk about the Bible, some important considerations. Uh, in view of reading and studying uh, the Bible. And then we'll get into the actual text of this book of, uh, of Hosea. And so as we think about studying our Bible, that's probably uh, one of the things that uh, if I could uh, make everybody do one thing, probably the, one of the most important things that I would uh, say to you, you study your Bible. Spend time in your Bible. Make an effort uh, to read the Word of God. But there's a problem in, in many cases in that we don't understand what the Bible is. And I got into a conversation uh, last week in one of our, our local restaurants. And, uh, some of you have heard me. I've got a little line that uh, I will say that uh, when you tell somebody, if you meet somebody on an airplane or restaurant or just out, they don't know you, and you tell them, well, I am a Baptist preacher, that is usually the quickest way to end any conversation. They'll go hide in the bathroom or, you know, say, oh, <laughs> I got a cold, I need to go get some water, or they'll find an excuse uh, to end the conversation. And so I, the conversation kind of went that way, and I, I made that statement. I expected the guy to say, well, you know, hey, I got to go, good, good talking to you. But he wanted to talk. And as it turns out, he's a member of a, a local church. And uh, uh, a church that, in my view, uh, the whole denomination is very, very troubled. I don't mean to be, you know, hypercritical. Uh, but the, the Methodist church have, have embraced uh, some very uh, unbiblical doctrines and false practices. And so he began to tell me, uh, about his membership in the Methodist Church and uh, his, the, the lady that was his pastor and uh, the conversation just never really improved very much after that. But as we began, I began to guide his thoughts toward the Bible, some of the issues that, that we're having and, and some of the things that maybe we should uh, be uh, thinking about. And he said, well, you know, the Bible is really only a description of men's attitudes about and encounters with God. They're, they're just what men think about God and kind of the details of their religious experience. And I thought, we got a problem here, Houston. And we really don't have a basis to carry on much of a discussion in that he would not think of the Bible as authoritative in any area of his life. I mean, it tells a nice story. It, it may even provide some guidelines that if you follow them, your life would be better. But as far as being the testimony about the character of God, the will of God, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the, the biblical indictment for the reality of our sin, he had no concept. And so as I began to press upon him that there are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are true because they are stated, they are revealed to us clearly in the Word of God. His attitude was, so what? It's just a collection of experiences that men claim to have with this being that they call God. That it's not really binding. It's not really uh, authoritative. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the authority to indict and warn of condemnation. And so, uh, believe it or not, I mean, we, there never was any real uh, hostile, harsh words. And we kind of agreed that, hey, we'd like to talk again someday. So maybe uh, that will happen. But you can have a, a lot of knowledge about the facts of the Bible. But if you don't understand 
that the facts point to the great reality of what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we're hopeless and helpless sinners apart from that saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're just not going to get it. And so, what is the Bible? It is the inspired, it is the inerrant, it is the infallible Word of God, and it is given to us to reveal what God has done for us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's primarily what the Bible is about. It is uh, the testimony as to what God has done and the fact, hear me, that you need God to act. You must have God take action. If He does not take action, you shall live forever under His condemnation. And so if you don't come at it with that, then, then basically any reading of it is going to produce all kinds of misguided notions and understandings. And so, why do you read a book of the Bible? And now there are legitimately different ways of reading the Bible. Uh, I, we talk about doing devotional readings, okay? Uh, whether they're longer sections of Scripture or shorter readings of Scripture. But you're reading them devotionally. You're not necessarily studying them. That doesn't mean you can't take notes. That can't, doesn't mean you can't ask questions of it. But uh, uh, that's kind of the, kind of the low level of, of reading. I, I'm just reading it through uh, to try to gain some, some knowledge, some insight. Uh, maybe you're reading the Bible. You have a difficult question about life. Now, you've, you've heard me say this many times. And see, and, and in this man that I talked to, this wouldn't matter to him. But if the Bible defines what your opinion should be on the subject, you're not entitled to any other view. Now, I'm sorry, you know, but that's just the way it is. Now, for this guy, well, the Bible is really not any type of binding, inspired, inerrant, infallible word to me. So what about it could be binding? It's just, just a loose collection of th notions that people had about reality and about the explanation for reality and all of these types of things. And so you can search the Bible for questions to, or answers to questions. Now, let me tell you one way not to do that. Who should I marry? Isaiah! I found my answer in the Bible. His name is Isaiah. You got, you got to study. The Bible. I mean, it's not just a matter of throwing it up in the air and letting it fall open to uh, some passage and you thinking the answer to your question uh, is in that uh, particular random location. Now, you can study the Bible academically, and I think there's value to that, to really uh, digging in. And kind of the academic side of it leads to preparing uh, to teach. I will be fair with you. Uh, I started teaching Sunday school uh, when I was about 30 years old, maybe a little younger. Uh, I got drafted. I was not looking to teach. Uh, I was looking to do as little as I possibly could. And, uh, uh, but the thing was, once they asked me to teach, th there were two things. I, and I was teaching my brother and my cousins and people I had grown up with. So I couldn't lie and say, let me tell you guys, I've had this thing together my whole life and I'm such a great example of how to live. That, you know, I, let me just tell you all the stories from my life. They knew that would have been a bold, fast life. So I determined, the only thing I can tell you is what the Bible says. Hopefully I'll explain to you what it means. So that kind of drove me to that. And then, since I didn't want to look like an idiot stepping up there on Sunday morning, I decided I better study. And then a strange thing happened. God radically changed my life. I mean, it was unbelievable. Like I said, didn't, didn't want to teach. Didn't even want to be. I mean, I was going to go to church. I knew it was the right thing to do. You couldn't walk away from it, really. But I just wanted to be as, you know, little commitment, little involvement as I possibly could. And then, Wow. And here I am 30-something years later. And I always tell people when they take a Sunday school class for the first time, I said, be careful. Be careful. That's where it all started with me. And so, you know. But the, the Word of God 
when you're a child of God, if you come to it as the Bible for all the Bible is, it will change you. And so uh, that's what we study for because as believers we know that we must be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit and the primary instrument that God uses to change our life is the Word of God. So, now, having kind of emphasized the Bible, so the only thing that you need, the only thing you ever need to pay attention to is your Bible, right? We, we, a lot, every year or so, we celebrate Reformation Day. We talk about those five solas. And one of the five solas is Scripture alone. What that means is the Word of God is the final authority for all things in matters of faith and practice. It is the ultimate, it is the final authority. If we have a disagreement over something, we need to go to the Word of God and determine what the Word of God says about that particular issue. Now, there's a difference between affirming Scripture alone. It is, again, our, our, our sole guide uh, to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, that, that which is instrumental in us being saved by God's grace through faith. But we, we come uh, to the Bible, but most of us need a little help with it. Most of us could use just a smidgen of guidance. Okay? Now, I don't want to dismiss the believer, their Bible, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But I think for most of us, we do well to take advantage of the fact that there are people that have gone before us, and there are people that are surrounding us now, that have great insight, have great wisdom in what the Bible means and how it should be applied in our lives. Uh, many of you have a study Bible. Now, if it is a good study Bible, somebody, somebody asked me the other day, does anybody know what a Dake study Bible is? A Dake. D-A-K-E. Anybody know what a Dake study Bible is? Nobody? Good. Because it, it is really the kind of, it's kind of the Schofield reference Bible for all the knotheads we see standing in all the knucklehead churches throughout the world today. Okay? It, it is just a Bible that, that, you know, a loose cannon uh, edited and put in all of his footnotes like you see in other study Bibles. But if you've got a good study Bible, a reputable study Bible, they're, they're tremendous aids. They can help you into uh, reading and understanding a passage as you're working through. And then beyond that, what we call commentaries. They can be very, very useful. Systematic theologies. And everybody go, oh, gosh, you know, that's, that's terrible. No. Most people think about the Bible and its relevance in terms of questions. Well, what does the Bible say about sin? Well, in a good systematic theology, you can actually go and find a chapter that will summarize for you what the Bible says about sin. Isn't that nice? It's just a way of organizing things according to themes and topics. So sometimes you can find those, sometimes you can find those helpful. Uh, listening to sermons. Listen to your Sunday school teachers. All of these things are really, really good to help guide you because you can't go straight. And here's the thing. Probably the most well-known, somewhere between heretical and apostate groups um, that we are familiar with would be the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Roman Catholics, and the Word of Faith movement. And they all claim the Bible at some, in some shape, form, or fashion. They all say, hey, we read the Bible, we believe the Bible, we affirm the Bible, but they've gotten way off track. And, and sometimes they've gotten way off track specifically in, return, in, in regards to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and that salvation is through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, a real, absolutely fundamental and devastating error. Now, let me say this, since we're fixing to get into the, the book of, of Hosea. Um, now, I have a little, another little cliche. And my wife doesn't like for me to say this, but I'll say it anyway. Since she's not here, and I know y'all won't tell her that I said this, right? But I avoid religious entertainment religiously because it is no, neither entertaining nor religious. Okay? Uh, that's just kind of my, my thing. 
I, I typically don't think they're very well made. And they make so many factual errors that it drives me nuts. Okay, that's just kind of my thing. Now, last year, uh, there was a movie supposedly kind of taken from the book of Hosea called Redeeming Love. I never saw it. And if God is merciful, I never will. Okay? Uh, now, you know, I pray, I'm, I'm praying that God will deliver me from having to, to see the movie. Now, um, my understanding... Now, here, and here's the thing. There's so much out there. People a lot of times ask me about this book or that book or this church or that church or this preacher or that... And, and, and some of you, I'm like, I don't know. And, and, and I honestly really don't have time to, to really dig in. If I can't find it quickly, you know, somebody that I respect commenting on it, you know, probably beyond anything that, that I could say anything about. But my understanding was that it took quite a bit of liberty uh, with the story. Uh, and, I, and I think, I, and I Googled it today and it said it's kind of, I think it loosely based. But again, if, if you're going to make a connection between, if, if, if you're doing some type of art, whatever, and you're saying it's in some way representative of what the Word of God is, you better be accurate, is my opinion. It better be right down the line and not depart. And my understanding was that the movie itself got a little racy at some point. I, I do not know. I don't... It, you know, every once in a while I have to give in and watch a Hallmark movie. It, 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 it hurts me to do so, but, you know, I will do that sometimes. But, uh, you know, it... it you know, I, I, I don't think watching that particular movie is going to help you with your understanding of the book of Hosea. That's probably true of a great number of the things that are, you know, supposedly video-type treatments. It's not absolute. That's just an opinion, okay? But, but you need to think about that. Okay, preparing to read the book of Hosea. Well, we see the title. It's, the name of the book is Hosea. Uh, taken from a, a word that has to do with God's salvation, uh, related to the, uh, to the words that we see uh, uh, translated as uh, Joshua and Jesus and Hashia. Uh, they're all in that same word group. Now, if I say that the events that are being referred to in the book of Hosea occurred at the time of the divided kingdom, does anybody have a clue what I mean when I speak of the divided kingdom? Anybody? Debbie Burdett, you better raise your hand that you know absolutely for certain what the divided kingdom is. Okay. Now, I say that because one of the reasons that we struggle to understand our Bibles is we have no clue what the writer was addressing, what the, what the context, the historical context was. We, we, are, we pick up the Bible and say, oh, that's speaking right to me. That's about me. No, it's not. Okay? It's not about you. Okay? It's, it's about what was going on in that particular context, referencing God with the goal of pointing out that God is to be glorified in all things, that God is our one and only hope. He is the Savior. And so... Hosea occur, or was written at a time toward the end of what's called the divided kingdom. After the death of King Solomon. Everybody know who Solomon was? David's son. Solomon, Solomon, everybody, okay? He dies, the kingdom splits. Northern and southern kingdom, okay? Northern kingdom quickly apostatizes. They rebel against God. They prosper for a while. But, but they are... Uh, my watch just told, gave me a definition for rebellion. Imagine that. So, uh, so this, uh, Hosea is observing a time frame in which the nation is seemingly doing well, a fair amount of political stability, strong economy, militarily they're, they're okay, but a collapse is coming because of their spiritual and their moral apostasy. Okay? They have departed from God. Now, another thing about understanding the prophets, the prophets do say things in regards to this is going to happen in the future. Uh, some of it may have something to do with something in our future. For the most part, it was a more, a nearer future to the people that they were writing to. Okay? But, the writer, the, the prophet, would speak about the failure of the nation to obey 
God's covenant, God's law. Okay? Uh, that if you go back and you, you review particularly Exodus and Deuteronomy, and particularly as Deuteronomy, as you come to the end of Deuteronomy, God says this, what? Something like this. I have, it has pleased me to redeem you out of Egypt. It, it has been a, a great thing for me to lead you through the desert and establish you in this promised land. And I will rejoice in being good to you and prospering you. But, if you rebel against me and you refuse to live under the terms of the covenant, obey my law, I will equally delight in destroying you from this land. In other words, the nation knew that God was not one to be trifled with. And so God sends these prophets as they're rebelling against God's law, as the nation is rebelling against law, and they're crying out, repent, repent, repent. Here's what's going to happen in the case of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians are going to come and they're going to destroy you. And here's the thing, one of the interesting things, as I said, there's a northern and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is destroyed in 722, and they are gone. They are no longer a people. They are kind of assimilated, and to what degree they survived, they were known in the New Testament as the Samaritans. Okay? A people of Jew-Gentile intermingling. Okay? No more northern kingdom. Ten tribes. God graciously preserves Judah, the southern kingdom, until 586. And he allows them even to remain uh, intact after the Babylon captivity for the sake of what? For the sake of being the people to whom our Savior would be born. Okay? Because God is ultimately faithful. And so when we read the book of Hosea, he is calling a specific people at a specific time to repent. He is warning them of a very specific danger of God judging them for their evil, for their rebelling. And he's reminding them that God will be sure to forgive if they repent. And even if they don't, because God is faithful to himself, he will preserve a people for himself. It's real interesting. None of the Mullins girls are here tonight. Oh, there you are. Yeah, I talked to your grandma at the Tuesday. And I just thought about her this, this, that morning. I was sitting there studying Hosea. And there's a number of ways we can talk about the theme of the book. But one of the predominant themes and one of the easy things today, it is that God is faithful. And I looked up and right there on my mantle was a plaque about yay bitty. God is faithful. That she gave to me years ago uh, for Christmas. And that's always kind of been her tagline. You see an email from her, it's, it's tagged with God is faithful. So I thought that was interesting and that, I, that I did run into her uh, after uh, that. And so, Hosea is speaking to a specific people, specific time, issues that are relevant to them. And so we have to kind of extrapolate, but they're still relevant to us. But let's remember first and foremost, we've got to understand what God is saying to ancient Israel in terms of calling uh, them to repentance. Okay? Alright. Well, let's, uh, let's get into the book then. Let's begin there in chapter 1 and verse 1. One of the things I think is helpful in mastering any material I, I'll tell you this. Last year we did the read through the Bible plan on, for the morning devotions. We usually did anywhere from three to five chapters a day. Now, I told my wife, I said, now the way that I see this is that you will listen to what I say about this is what you're about to read. Here's a key verse. Here's a key concept. So be looking for it when you read. Now see, I, I used to be a school teacher, and I know a little bit about learning theory, and one of the things, if I want you to learn something, I'm going to tell you, this is what I want you to learn, then I'm going to teach you what it is I want you to learn. Okay? If that makes sense. And so, that was the plan. And she's, oh, no, 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 no. I just want to read my Bible, then I'll listen, you know, something. Whatever. 
you know. But you need to understand what is going on in the book. What, what are you looking for? Have some guidelines. Have some things that you are looking for. One of the things that, that helps me get my mind around particularly an entire book, 14 chapters, is an outline. Now, I'm, I divided the book into three sections. It, it really just divides into two, but I did it because I'm a preacher and you've got to have three points. Okay? So I'm kind of made up one at the end, but it, it kind of works. The first four chapters have to do with Hosea's marriage. It is, it is historical. It is real. He was a real man. He had a real wife, real tragedy in the home. It's very real. But it is an allegory. It is an illustration of the way the nation has grieved God and the way he will deal with the nation and yet his ultimate faithfulness and, and here's the question. God is faithful first and foremost to whom? God is faithful first and foremost to himself. To what he has determined that he will do. Doesn't mean he's not faithful to his people. He is. But I'm saying first and foremost the reason that he is faithful to his people is for the sake of his name. And so, it is an illustration, and I'll go ahead and tell you, it is a foreshadowing of Christ and His great love for His church. God is the faithful husband in the book of Hosea. Christ is the consummate, the ultimate faithful husband to be revealed in the new covenant. One of the things when we were working through the, the Old Testament books uh, in the devotions is sometimes I would just say, these horrible kings simply pointed out the fact that there needed to be a perfect king and they weren't him. They could only look forward to the perfect king and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in a similar, similar but not exactly the same way, God is the faithful husband, but under the terms of the old covenant, there was never going to be a faithful bride. That, that their, their existence was due strictly to, to the power and the faithfulness and the graciousness of God. But under the new covenant, Christ is going to have a bride. And while imperfect, that bride, I believe, ultimately proves herself faithful by the power of Almighty God. By the new and better covenant. Okay, A covenant that is internal not external, like the old covenant was. Okay? So, Hosea chapter 1, we see Hosea introduced, and he gives us some insight to the time frame that he lived in, that he addresses about 750 B.C., about 750 years uh, before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 of chapter 1, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for forsaking the Lord. And so he went back and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, that's pretty rough language there. Okay? Sometimes biblical writers speak incredibly, you can call it crude, you can call it, call it blunt, but they do it not to draw attention to themselves. It is to draw attention to the grossness of the sin that they're indicting. Okay? And so that is a, a shocking word that none of us should really use in polite company. But God has a purpose for the gruff language. And so the instructions to the prophet Hosea, and there's a lot of debate as to whether she was already an immoral woman when he married her, or that she was not immoral when he married her, but she came, became immoral during the course of the marriage. I tend to think of her as becoming immoral, that she wasn't immoral initially. I could be wrong. The people go back and forth. But the point is that she proves herself to be unfaithful. And notice here, Hosea, I want you to take this wife. She is going to be unfaithful. I want you to have children with her 
and we start getting a hint of what God's going to be all about in doing this, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So, Hosea, you're going to understand by actually being the aggrieved, the, the betrayed husband, you're going to get an understanding of, and this is the wrong way to say it, but let me just say it this way, this is how God feels at being betrayed by his, by his people. Now, uh, there's a sense where God really doesn't have feelings like human beings have. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Uh, he's always the same. But I think you understand that that's kind of an illustrative way of speaking of God's resentment, His anger at, uh, at the behavior of His covenant people. And so, He marries Gomer. Isn't that a great name for a bride? So, so you guys, if you say, God, I sure do want a wife, if you'll show me your name, if your Bible happens to open Hosea, you know, you're going to be stuck with, with a wife named Gomer. Okay? So, Alright. So, she conceives and has a son. The question is, was this a child of immorality? Was it Hosea's child? Again, hard to know exactly. But the name is illustrative. Name him Jezreel. And that name in Hebrew kind of translates as the, the Lord sows or scatters. So it's the idea of dispersing, of, of bringing, of breaking down uh, something. And this particular, there's a valley known as the Valley of Jezreel in which uh, uh, the, uh, the Lord brought judgment upon evil King Ahab's house. And so there's kind of some historical reference there. And then he's told there in uh, verse, verses 6 through 8 to go and to have another child and you're to name her No Mercy. Well, the, the, the name there is Lo. In Hebrew, Lo is not. Okay? Uh, and the word is Rohama. And it's a word for comfort. So she is not comfort, comforted, not pitied, no mercy. Okay? So name this child no mercy. Judgment is coming without mercy is the message illustrated in the life of this child. Notice here. Call her by the name no mercy. Verse 6. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah. That southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is going to be destroyed. He's going to preserve the southern kingdom for the remnant. For the sake of his name, for the sake of his plan of salvation, namely the revelation and the presentation of his son, uh, Jesus Christ. Okay? Now then, the next child is born, and look there in verse 9, you're going to name him Lo Ami. Lo, not Ami, people. Not my people. Okay? This child is not my people. Now, one of the interesting things, and we got into some of this in our adult Bible study last week, is how New Testament writers will bring forth Old Testament passages and apply them to the church. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, uh, you see an allusion to this that in the church, God has called a people that were not His people to be His people. Okay? Kind of a, an interesting play there that is reminiscent of what's going on uh, here. And so, three children, three names, all illustrating God's displeasure, all looking forward to a coming uh, judgment. But notice there in verse 10, God promises what? There's going to be a judgment, but there's going to be mercy in my judgment. There's going to be a tenderness in my judgment. I'm going to preserve a people. Yet the number of the, ch of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You're not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. That God is going to preserve a people through this judgment. And He will have a people for His name. And so... That's kind of Hosea's story. That's how the marriage and the children illustrate 
the apostasy, the rebellion, the covenantal unfaithfulness that was going on uh, within uh, the nation of Israel. In chapter 2, we begin to see God again expand his indictment uh, upon the nation, but also he gives this glimpse occasionally that the destruction in one sense is going to be total, but the destruction will not be utter destruction that I will preserve the people. Now, this illustration continues. Move over to chapter 3. <clears throat> God instructing the prophet Hosea. Hosea, by his actions, painting the picture of a faithful God who is a faithful husband that will never leave or forsake his wife. And so Hosea's instructions in chapter 3, and the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Here's a husband that has to go into the slave market and publicly pay a price for a woman that has been unfaithful to him to bring her back to himself, to reclaim her for himself. Now, verse 3 says something about the fact that you're mine again, but you're not going to carry on like you've done before. I'm going to put boundaries around you that are going to keep you from behaving uh, in the, the, the way that you behave. And again, that's again what God is going to do to this nation of Israel. I'm going to reclaim you. I'm going to preserve you. But I'm going to create some boundaries so that you can no longer continue to drift away from me, to turn your backs on me. And so, uh, so this again illustrates God's faithfulness, God's love, foreshadows the perfection of Christ as the faithful husband, and again, the horror of the evil. What, what represents the evil of the nation? An immoral woman. And her, her immorality, her, her, her uh, treacherous behavior is even highlighted by the graciousness of her husband that goes to these public lengths to redeem her, to buy her out of that slavery that, again, she had brought upon herself. Okay, now let's begin as we move forward. That was three chapters. That's the first section, Hosea's life, Hosea's drama, the picture of God and Israel played out in Hosea's marriage, in Hosea's children, and we see the faithfulness of God, the horror of the sin of the nation, and the graciousness of God in that he's not, they are going to be judged, but it's not going to be an utter destruction. That God has a plan to preserve the people, namely, really not the northern kingdom, but that southern kingdom of Judah, if you'll remember he mentioned earlier. So, let's look at elements of Hosea's message. Now, Look at, at chapter 4, verse 6. Key verse. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget you as your children. And remember what I said about Deuteronomy. Here's the law. Here's the covenant. Here's what you are to obey. This is how you are to live. If you live by it, Great things are going to happen. If you choose to rebel, I'll kill you. Just kind of be simple and, and to summarize. And so, that destruction is coming. Why is it coming? Look there at verse 6. My people are destroyed for what? A lack of knowledge. That they have not learned. They have not heard. Now, again, just to kind of make an application... I think that's true of the modern church. Somebody said to me 
recently that uh, it didn't seem to them like the average church member could in any shape, form, or fashion communicate or define what the gospel is or what the gospel is not. And I mean, that's an incredible indictment. But I think that it's true. Now, I must tell you, I, I, I kind of ran out of time, but, you know, I, I used to teach school, and I love to give tests, and I love to make X marks on papers and all that kind of stuff. And I really, the way I was going to conclude tonight is give you ten multiple choice questions, and at the top of it, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, and see if you can pass a test on the book of Hosea. But being the uber gracious guy that I am, I chose not to do that. But I thought it would have been interesting. Now, it's not that you need just a bunch of random facts. And I, all my life I've ran across people and, and sometimes they're, they're really not thought to be Christians. They don't make a claim to be Christians. But sometimes like, but they really know the Bible. Now what that means is they've got two or three little hobby horses that they picked up along the way, that they like to pull out and, you know, try to raise some type of issue about the Bible, okay? They may know a few facts or a few stories or something like that. Sometimes they may know them reasonably well. And, of course, it allows them to feel very pompous. And usually with those stories is some type of indictment of this is why I don't or I'm not a part of, of the church, Okay? And so I'm not saying just you need to just accumulate random facts. But knowledge is something that doesn't just drop into your head randomly. Knowledge is something that has to be pursued. And this truth still applies. That God's people will be destroyed without knowledge. That you must have knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of the Word of God, knowledge of the God of the word and it will only happen if you put forth some effort put forth, and, and, and more effort than just coming to church occasionally you're going to have to pick up your Bible you're going to have to take some time and study the word of God now hear me let's, let's just turn that around if you go well you know Tim's just an old man he, he ain't got anything better to do than read his Bible but I got lots of stuff to do and it's interesting and fun and I just don't have time for that Okay, so you are not going to acquire knowledge. What happens to you? Everything goes great? You will be destroyed. You will be destroyed. And again, when the covenant is made, God says, hey, I'm setting before you life and death. Make your choice. So knowledge or ignorance? Life or death? My people are destroyed. Now, the tragedy is, and we find all through the prophets, that the priest and even some of the prophets were as corrupt as everybody else was in the society. As Paul would say, they were saying what their itching ears wanted to hear. And so, again, we must have a sure and certain knowledge of the Word of God and the God of the Word. And in this case, in Hosea's case, judgment is coming because Israel and Judah, Judah, they are guilty. They have played the harlot. They have apostatized. They have fallen away from God. But here's the thing. If you go to chapter 6, Hosea says they're going to try to play a game. They're going to try to act like they're grieved by their sin. And they're going to try to act like they repent. And here's the thing. There is an eternal difference between being sad you got caught, being sad that you're embarrassed, being sad that the people you care about got hurt or they're mad at you because you did something stupid. There's a world of difference between that and biblical repentance. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, that godly sorrow produces repentance, but sorrow as the world gives brings about death. It is the deep sense, and as David expressed it in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Okay? That, that is the testimony to real repentance. Notice there in chapter 6, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, He will bind us up. After two days, 
days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. And then we may live before him. It's, listen, we're just going to go through this thing. It's going to be quick. It's going to be easy. We'll just kind of behave for a while. We'll fool God into thinking we're repentant. And he's going to remove his judgment from us. But that is not going to be uh, the case. Look there at verse 6, chapter 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I, desi I desire that your life be radically transformed, not that you just go through the motions. Now, that verse 6 there, that steadfast love, there's a Hebrew word that's used throughout the Old Testament. It looks like in English, H-E-S-E-D. It looks like hesed, but it's pronounced kesed. And it is used to describe God's covenantal love and loyalty that is supposed to be reciprocated by His people. God demonstrates His kessid toward His people, His covenantal faithfulness, that He will never violate His covenant with His people. He desires that they live with reciprocal covenantal faithfulness. But they, like their first father Adam, has rebelled against God. So chapter 8, Hosea continues the indictment. And here we see that great uh, picture where he says, For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. That is, listen, you may sin, and you may rebel, and you may, as kind of an old thing people say, you may sow your wild oats, but the harvest will come back to devastate you. There's what they call the law of the harvest. You shall, sow, you shall reap later than you sow. You shall reap more than you sow. And you shall reap in kind with what you sow. You sow the seeds of hell. You will reap the fruit of hell. Okay? And so, that is Hosea's message uh, to uh, the people. That they, their, their judgment is going to be sure. It's going to be certain. And indeed, it is going to be devastating. It's going to be in kind with their rebellion. And moving forward, in, verse, in chapter 11, God once again makes a statement of His undying love. He speaks of His claim upon the nation, of His deliverance of the nation and His promise that ultimately and utterly they will not be destroyed. Look at verse 9 of chapter 11. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God, I am not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. That is again, I will relent of wiping you off of the face of the earth. Chapter 12, again, an indictment. An indictment of both Israel and Judah. Judah is only being preserved not because they're innocent, but because God is gracious. And so, God has announced, He has pronounced, He has spelled out uh, the judgment, and they are going to come under His judgment. The final chapter, chapter 14, God's appeal to an apostate nation, to a rebellious nation, to a sinful nation. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to Him, Take away all iniquity except what is good, and we will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will no, say no more our God to the work of our hands. In, the, in you, the orphan finds mercy. So the devastated will find the grace of God. We come to you with broken hearts. We make vows. We renounce that we were trying to make an alliance with a foreign nation for our salvation. We were not trusting in you. In you. Now we will trust in you. And God says, I will heal their apostasy and I will love them freely. Now, as I said, one of the problems in seeing things like that, Samaria, Northern Kingdom destroyed. Never to be heard of really again. Judah, 
sent into the exile in Babylon. They returned. Not real impressive, quite honestly. Nothing about them is particularly impressive, except that from that restored nation, our Lord Jesus Christ is born. And so, I believe that ultimately, the healing of the apostasy is really the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in His person and work and His claim upon the church. The problem with Israel was not with God, but kind of the nature of that covenant in that it was not a covenant that wrote the law upon the heart of those Israelites. Now, there were some that were born again and the law was written on their heart and they followed God. But most of the citizens of that kingdom, of either kingdom, north or south, most of them never truly knew their God. And the distinction between the Israel and the church is, if you're truly a member of the church, you know your God. The law has been written on the heart. And you will ultimately prove yourself to be the faithful bride because the faithful husband has not only claimed you, he has equipped you to walk faithfully with him in a way that was unknown to the nation of Israel. So, final word from the prophet. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is wise, let him understand the warning. How God dealt with Israel. How God always deals with sin. Our hope in his faithfulness. The truth. That God is indeed our faithful God. That, that even though we are faithless, He is faithful. Even in dealing with rebellious people, He will preserve a remnant for His name, for His purpose, for Himself. So, Hosea, the picture of Christ while not the perfect picture, it is the clear picture of the Son of God as the faithful husband who claims and perfects, dresses his bride in the robes of righteousness in a way that can only be hinted at, only be dimly pictured in the life of the nation of Israel and illustrated in the life of Hosea and his wife, Gilman. Interesting book. I, I wish we'd have more time, but we don't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us this time. I pray that you will bless your truth uh, to the lives of your people, uh, that we would honor you uh, in all things, that you would be glorified, and that our testimony would indeed be that our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, is indeed our faithful husband. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.